It's been a great joy to be with you over this uh, Advent season. And Christine and uh, myself, we've really appreciated your fellowship, your prayers, and the opportunity just to get to know you a wee bit uh, better. And so we, we thank you for the privilege that has been ours to, to come these Sundays and share uh, with you. I trust you have a a Bible or you can look on a Bible, a New Testament. This morning I'm going back to Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 2. And forgive me, I'm taking uh, the Bible reading this morning. Luke chapter 2 and verse 21 and reading through to verse 38. Luke chapter 2 and verse 21 to 38. And I'm reading from the uh, ESV. And Luke records, And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And the sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. May God bless to us this portion of his word together this morning. Well, since I was here last with you, Christmas has come and Christmas has gone. I'm sure that by now all the presents have been opened. The turkey may be finished. 
Uh, the cake has probably been eaten. The reunions are all over and you're now getting back to face reality. Within the context of what we have been looking at over the past weeks, Joseph has gotten over his grief and become joy. Mary has sung her Magnificat. Zechariah has completed his Benedictus. Heaven's Army Choir have praised God with their Gloria in Excelsis Deo. The shepherds have returned, glorifying, praising God for all that they have heard and seen. And at the end of eight days, as Luke records for us in verse 21 of that second chapter, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angels before he was conceived in the womb. But it's not over until it's over. Because there is another song to be heard within the framework of the Christmas story. Simeon's Dimittis. Those Latin words that come from the 29th verse of that second chapter. Now, Lord, your servant departs. Your servant departs in peace. And so this is what we want to look at together this morning. What lessons that we can glean from this final song that is sung at this Advent period. My outline you'll find in the back of your bulletin. My three major points for the morning are simply these. To think a little bit about the setting which is described here for us by Luke. The singer who is identified. And then this suffering that is prophesied. The setting which is described. And for that, I'm looking at verses 21 through 24. And I want you to notice three things here which are employed by Luke to point us to the future, to the very destiny of the Christ child. The first is highlighted by the word participation. Participation. Verse 21. Participation in pain. You see, why does Luke include this note about the circumcision of the Christ? He includes it, I believe, because here is a precursor of what is going to unfold in the future. For here is this this sinless Jesus undergoing a rite that was a graphic symbol of cleansing from sin. And a rite which involved suffering and pain and the shedding of blood. So in this very beginning of his days, in his infancy, we see Jesus being identified very, very closely with humanity. And also his participation in suffering that would culminate at the cross. 
And then in verses 22 through 24, we have purification. The purification of the parents. What strikes you as you read these few texts is the note that everything here is being done strictly in accordance with the law of God. The number of times that phrase comes out here. And all that the parents are doing here, they're doing it in accordance not just with tradition, but with the law of God. A sacrifice was required for purification. The sacrifice of a lamb or a goat. But you see here that what is being offered here, what is being sacrificed here, is neither lamb nor goat, but is in fact simply a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons as required by the law. What's the difference? The difference is simply this. If you could not afford, if you could not afford these other animals, a lamb or a goat, if you were poor, a poor family, then you could sacrifice doves or pigeons. They were acceptable according to Leviticus 12.18. And so in verse 24, we're given an insight into the economic status of Mary and Joseph. They were a poor young family. They could not afford a lamb. They could not afford a goat. They bring what poor people could offer. There is participation in pain. There's the purification of the parents. And then thirdly, there is the presentation of Jesus. The presentation where five shekels were required by the law in order to redeem the firstborn. And your Old Testament reference there is is Numbers chapter 18 and verse 15 through 16. And so, he's the firstborn. He belongs to the Lord, but they can be redeemed. And the cost of redemption, five shekels. Now, the the implication of these three ancient ceremonies is this. Mary and Joseph and Jesus were required to fulfill everything that the law demanded. So that what is being demonstrated here and what is being illustrated here is the fulfillment of the words of the Apostle Paul. For if you remember those words in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. So that Christ Himself in all of His life, from His first breath to His last, was lived in accordance with complete perfection to the law of God. Because you see, in order to pay for our sins, in order to die as a substitute for us, He had to live a perfect life. In order to offer a perfect sacrifice. And so we see the beginning of things laying the foundation for that future work 
of crucifixion. Therefore, in Jesus' circumcision, we see identification. Jesus identifies himself with the ruined race he had come to save. In purification, the aspect and element of destitution, here was a humble home. Here was a a family that knew the difficulties of living. And yet, how remarkable. A poor family. And yet, Jesus... What does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9? That glorious favorite carol of mine taken up by Frank Horton. Though he was rich, yet for our sake became poor. Leaving the mansions of heaven as it were, the glories of heaven. He comes not to a palace, not to become a prince. But he comes to a poor young couple. Struggling. To make ends meet. And in his presentation. There is perfection. Perfect obedience to the law of redemption. So that even in his infancy. You see some of the signs. The marks. The indications of his destiny. Perfection to the law. Poverty. Even poverty of spirit. And pain. Pain. The giving of himself. Redemption. The giving by himself. Not not simply five shekels. Nor even silver or gold. But he comes to redeem. By his own precious blood. It is these things. That these ancient ceremonies point us to. And thus the setting that is described here for us by Luke. Now from that setting and those ceremonies. Our attention is then drawn to this man named Simeon. A godly man who we are told was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Verse 25 of that second chapter. And so I direct your attention now to this this singer who is identified for us and his attention is drawn to us in verse 25 to 32. What does Luke tell us about this man before this man breaks forth into song and speech? Well, once again, I draw your attention to three little things here. The first is this. Simeon was a man of personal godliness. There are three characteristics given to us here that mark this man. In our terminology, he was a saintly man. He's described as being righteous and devout. Righteousness, that is, he behaved well towards people. Devout. That was, he was careful in all his religious duties. In verse 29, you get the element of submissiveness. He describes himself as servant, your servant. And thirdly, he was a spiritual man. Did you notice, as we read through this portion a few minutes ago, that there are three references to the Holy Spirit 
within this section. Verses 25 through 27. Simeon was a rare man of God. Because in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God would come upon people, usually for special occasions or to accomplish a special task. But a continuing presence of the Spirit of God with the person was very, very rare. But this is the the language and the grammar that is implied here with this man. This is what's being suggested here. And furthermore, we read that not only was God's presence with this man, but God had given a promise to this man. Look at verse 26. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And you go down to verse 28. He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Simeon comes to the temple. And in the providence of God, the timing is perfect. Verses 27 and 28. He came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the Christ child or the child Jesus to do him according to the law, he took him up. He comes just at the right moment, just at the right time. Nothing accidental here. Here's the providence of God. Here's the plan and purpose of God working out for this man. And he sees this child and he takes this child Jesus up in his arms, which, which is a symbolic act of recognition. He saw who this child really was. Simeon, a man of personal godliness. In addition... He was a man of spiritual perceptiveness. For he comes to the temple. And yet what does he see? Verse 30 of his hymn. My eyes have seen your salvation. That you are prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. He comes to the temple and he sees the fulfillment of Scripture. Particularly the the promises and the prophecies of Isaiah. He comes and he recognizes the consolation, the comfort that God would now bring to Israel. His words pointing to the coming messianic age. His rescue and deliverance and the comfort of Almighty God. Behind these words of Simeon lie particularly the words of Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith the Lord. And the words of Isaiah 49. I thought you were going to read the portion this morning in verse chapter 49, which you did. But let me take you to the 13th verse of that chapter read to us right at the beginning of the service. And thank you for that. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on the afflicted. He sees the fulfillment of scripture in the coming of this child. And then he saw the fullness 
of salvation. The fullness my eyes have seen your salvation. Now let me stop for a moment. What do you think that term salvation meant to these people? How did they understand salvation? I ask the question because we stand this side of Calvary. We have a complete scripture. We have the, the historical record in the Gospels and we have the interpretation of those things in the writing of the Apostles so that we have a rather clear understanding of salvation. But what about Zechariah? He sang of salvation. What about the shepherds? They sang of salvation. What about Simeon here? What does he mean when he talks about my eyes have seen your salvation? What did salvation mean to those, the other side of the cross? Their view of salvation was influenced by two major things. God's mighty works, especially the redemption of the people from Egypt. That was a great picture to them of salvation. God's rescue of his people, God's redemption of his people. But in addition to that, their view of salvation was colored by God's mighty men. When God would save his people, he would raise up a deliverer. Whether it be Moses, or Joshua, or Samson. God would raise up someone to liberate his people from bondage. And therefore, to put it simply, in the Old Testament, salvation is the action of God and of God's servants in freeing Israel from slavery and protecting them in battle and giving them victory over their enemies. So that when Simeon lifts up Jesus and sings as he does in verse 30, he is placing this child within the framework of God's mighty men, and of God's mighty deeds of redeeming and liberating and protecting and conquering. But now... This redemption, God's mighty acts of deliverance through this child who will become mighty. There will be redemption and deliverance. Not just for Israel. But he is the savior of all men. As clearly indicated in verse 32. Thus enforcing the words recorded by John that I'm sure you know so well. God so loved the world. The world of sinful men and women. Ah, says and sings Simeon, the saviour of the world has come. But I want you also to notice a third thing about Simeon. And that is he was a man of eternal readiness. What does he say in verse 29? He begins his hymn with these words, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. 
The picture is a very moving one. Simeon is on the edge, it would appear, of the valley of the shadow. And yet there's no uncertainty with him. There's no anxiety being displayed. Simply a confession of faith. Faith in God's word. And a faith that brings forth peace. The the, the picture that Luke paints here is actually a military one. It's, It's of a soldier being relieved of sentry duty. He's been on guard all night. He has been awake and alert. He has been on watch. But now the relief comes. He's been on watch, but now the consolation of Israel has arrived. Now the Savior has come. And so Simeon, as it were, is relieved of his duty. He can now go and rest. He can go from his watchtower to his waiting home above. Nothing more to be done. He can go in peace. Good and faithful servant. And it's interesting that from very early times, This song here, Simeon's song, came to be a standard part of evening church services. That with the approach of night, there was a reminder of death. And some people would sing the song to bring comfort to their souls so they had nothing to fear in the dark. God, as I can, if I use the expression of uh, Steve Brown, God makes sure that he gets his children home before the dark. And this is Simeon. Simeon was ready. He had taken up the Savior. His eyes had seen salvation. He was ready. He was ready. But what about you? What about me? As we all approach with every passing moment, the time of our departure draws near. How will we depart? With peace or panic? Because you see, it is appointed unto man once to die, but after that, the judgment. Simeon was prepared. He'd taken hold of the Savior. I wonder if that's true of you. That's true of you. The setting that's described, the singer who's identified, and so thirdly for this morning, the suffering that is prophesied. The songs of Mary and Zechariah and the angelic host, you see, are full of celebration. They are are full of anticipation. They are full of exultation. But with Simeon's song, the mood changes abruptly. For here in verses 34 and 35, there is a jarring interruption. A chilling note is introduced. Simeon now speaks of growing opposition, growing opposition. 
Verse 34, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary's mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. What does he predict? Jesus will divide Israel. Jesus will divide Israel. Some will receive him. Others will reject him. How does John put it in chapter 1 of his gospel, verse 11 and 12? He came unto his own, but his own received him not. Those who did were given the privilege, the authority to become children of God. My friends, you read the story of Jesus in the Gospels and you will discover that as Jesus' ministry unfolded, hostility increased. And I think also of interest is the fact that, that, that in the Apostles' Creed, in the Nicene Creed, they recognized this, this, this animosity and antagonism because both of them moved directly from a statement regarding Jesus' incarnation to the statement of Jesus' crucifixion. They see them together, they link them together as they should because Jesus came in order to give himself a ransom for many. And what Simeon is stating here in these verses is this. When you stand before Jesus Christ, you cannot remain neutral. You either welcome him or you continue to be at war with him. As either surrender to him and enjoy his victory or you continue in rebellion to him and you experience his wrath. You're either for him or you're against him. And again it's a question I put to you. On what side do you stand? Where do you see yourself? Are you with him? Or are you against him? He comes to divide. And that division continues right to today. A growing opposition. And thus Simeon hints. An approaching crucifixion an approaching crucifixion notice what he says in verse 35 and a sword will pierce through your own soul also a sword what does Simeon see here the cross with Mary standing before it sorrowing at what has befallen her son. Because this word was directed right to Mary. The culmination of Mary's ever intensifying suffering and grief. Someday take time and study the life of this godly woman. And notice that as the days went by, loving Jesus would bring increasing sadness and suffering to her until that hour when she would watch his suffering and his shame and his sacrifice and the agony of her son hanging on that cruel cross. 
Look at the life of Mary. She is a great example for us in the Christian life. Following her son would bring a sword to her own soul and heart. And it was the very scene that was painted by the prophet of old. Or Zechariah, the old prophet, not the singer, the, 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 the father of John. Zechariah put it this way. When they look at me, they shall mourn. As one mourns for an only child and weeps bitterly as one weeps over a firstborn. Jesus' suffering will not leave Mary untouched. And so the, the challenge that I would bring to you from this final Advent song is simply this. What you get here in verse 35 is a demanding invitation. A demanding invitation. How does that verse conclude, verse 35? So that thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. That is, the coming of Jesus Christ will reveal the true status and state of our hearts. Again, going back to that question, the coming of Christ raises the question in our hearts, are we for him or are we against him? What is, what is our attitude, even this morning? What is our attitude towards Jesus Christ? Are we friend or are we foe? Oh yes, blessings abound to all who will believe and receive and follow. John promises, as I've indicated, the fact that, that we have forgiveness of sins and we become adopted into the family of God, that we become the children of God. We have all these great promises about what God will do for us and what he will make us to be if we trust and obey. But my friends, I will not mislead you this morning. I must be honest and spell it out clearly. God gives us the grace so that we might be saved. But in that same breath, he tells us, he also gives us the grace that we might suffer with him. That's our calling. To suffer with him. And what is it that Simeon predicts? Not only will Jesus suffer, but Mary also because she loves the Son. And so it has been for all who have loved the Son down through the corridors of time. John and Betty met together at Bible school fell in love. Betty graduated first and she went to China as a missionary. John eventually followed and they were married in October 1933. The mission, China Inland Mission, sent them to a small village of Qingti. They arrived in the village in late November 1934. Two weeks later, Early one morning, there was a pounding on their door. The lock was broken. Red soldiers marched into their courtyard. 
And without fear, John welcomed them and brought them into the home. Betty, being a good hostess, quickly prepared tea and biscuits and served the offices. John and Betty were then bound and carried away and detained overnight in a local prison. The next day, the communist soldiers marched them forward to a nearby village called Meoshu. There they were placed in a rich man's home, which at that time was being used as a prison. On the 8th of December, 1934, John and Betty were led out of town to a small hill known as Eagle Hill. There were a few Christians in the village, the fruit of previous missionary endeavor, and one man, a a seller of medicine, knelt and pleaded for the release of the prisoners. But it was rebuffed by the communists who later searched his house, found a Bible and a hymn book, confirming that indeed he was a believer and he was hacked to pieces. But that morning of the 8th of December 1934, John and Betty Stamm stood bound side by side. And according to one biographer, they apparently had exchanged a few words before they were ordered to kneel. And with a flash... A sword severed completely the head of John Stan. He fell dead to the ground. Betty fell over him. The sword flashed the second time and Betty's head was severed. The two died together, bearing testimony to their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I tell you the story of John and Betty Stan. For it tells us the story of what Simeon is singing about. Because it's telling us the truth of what we find in the Gospels. For it tells us what the Savior expects of those who would follow him. For Christ did not come to give us cakes and candles and cards. But he came to give us a cross. He came not that we would find life, but that we would lose our lives. To deny ourselves and to take up our cross and to follow him. And my friends, that's the message of Christmas. That's the true Christian message. Christ's great gift to us is eternal life. But it comes via a cross. So let me close with this. C.S. Lewis, I'm sure you know that name. C.S. Lewis was once asked, which of the religions of the world gives its followers the greatest happiness? So here's the question being put to him. Which of the religions of the world gives its followers the greatest happiness? Listen to his reply. Lewis said, I have an elderly acquaintance of about 80 who has lived a life of unbroken selfishness and self-admiration from the earliest years and is, more or less, I regret to say, the happiest man that I know. From the moral point of view, it's a difficult question to answer. 
He says, and I'm not approaching the question from that angle. Lewis goes on to say, as you have perhaps know, I haven't always been a Christian. I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that for me. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. If you are looking for a religion to make you comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. And I cannot help but think how that flies in the face of much of our Christianity today. That is all about me and my self-esteem and my well-being and my happiness and my joy. And Christ says, take up your cross and follow me. Simeon sang of a saviour. A saviour we all need and for which we'll be eternally thankful. But Simeon also spoke of a sword that points to suffering and persecution and possible martyrdom. For, says Peter, to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. My friends, Christ didn't come to call us to comfort and celebration. He came to call us to a cross and crucifixion. That's the way the master went. Shouldn't the servant tread it still? Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for all the riches that we have in Christ. We do thank you for that comfort and assurance of an eternity. We thank you for the comfort and the assurance of knowing that we are indwelt by your Spirit who never leaves us, will not forsake us. We thank you for the comfort of knowing that you are our God and Father. And you're working out your purposes, not only in our life, but in this world, because this is your world. And yet, our Father, help us to understand that you've caused us and called us to be salt and light in the midst of a dark and depraved generation. Grant to us, therefore, our Father, that desire to be what you would have us to be. And grant to us the strength that we require each day to walk humbly before you, taking up our cross, denying ourselves, in order that Christ may exalted be exalted in us, whether it be by life or by death. Grant us such grace, we pray of you now, in Jesus' name. Amen.